Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 196th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most intelligent, innovative, and influential people in Hollywood. She's the vice president of original documentary and comedy programming at Netflix, meaning she's a primary force behind documentary features like the Oscar-nominated The Square, Virunga, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, What Happened, Miss Simone, and 13th, as well as this season's Oscar shortlisted Chasing Coral, Icarus, One of Us, and Strong Island. Documentary shorts like the Oscar-winning White Helmets and this season's Oscar shortlisted Heroin and Ram Das Going Home, and documentary series like the Emmy-winning Making a Murderer, as well as stand-up comedy specials like the Emmy-winning Patton Oswalt, Talking for Clapping, all for a company that has 109 million subscribers worldwide, making it the world's dominant streaming platform, and her, in the eyes of The Hollywood Reporter, one of the 100 most powerful women in entertainment, Lisa Nishimura. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our deputy editorial director, Allison Brower. Brower started out as a reporter at Adweek and has since held editorships of one sort or another at Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Redbook, O Magazine, Bookish.com, 17, Good Housekeeping, and Dr. Oz, The Good Life. Her first stint at THR was as special projects editor for a chunk of 2013. She then returned in 2014 and has been deputy editorial director ever since. Allison, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. First of all, did I read that you were born in London? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I was born in London. My father was a journalist and novelist, and that year he was working abroad as a correspondent for Life magazine and working on a novel. And our whole family, I'm the youngest of five mm-hmm. kids, our whole family moved over there. I think I was in utero en route. <laughs> but And then I was born there. I, I, I'm told, I'm not 100% sure this is true and it's difficult to research, but I'm told I was delivered by the same doctor who delivered Prince Charles, oh, wow. who okay. is much older than me, however. <laughs> Let's duly noted. Where were you raised? Was it also there or back here? I was raised on the East Coast mm-hmm. in Princeton, New Jersey, college town, a little bit in Washington, D.C., but definitely very East Coast upbringing, played field hockey and lacrosse and all the things good East Coast <laughs> growing up girls do. So if I have it correct, you went to Princeton, graduated from there, and then pretty soon after were working in journalism. And I just wondered... Was having a father who was a journalist also something that made you more or less enthusiastic about getting into that field yourself? Sometimes it can be daunting to follow in big footsteps. It can cut both ways. And he definitely had a lot of prominence in certain arenas in his era. He covered Chappaquiddick for Life magazine. He was nominated for a National Book Award, that sort of thing. But I just grew up loving words. It's funny, my first job at Adweek, my grandfather was also a sort of Mad Men era advertising executive. So I was always interested in both those careers and ended up my original job sort of combining the two, but moved more into journalism. I just loved words. I didn't have a lot of ambivalence about getting into it. It's, you know, it was in my blood. And did you think that you would spend most of your career as a reporter? Or was an editor sort of position something that always did appeal to you? Oh, I think I was a born editor. I like to fix things. <laughs> and here at THR, you know, I've worked in news environments before, but this is really my longest stint and most intensive stint, really working in a news environment. And we are all reporters here. You know, we're all player coaches, so I've I've really developed more of that muscle here, and it's it's been very cool, challenging sometimes, especially this year with the, the difficult stories that we've been telling, but they're important stories to tell, so it's been rewarding. And we will dive into that a little bit more in a moment, but first, you spent all of your career up until 2013, I think, on the East Coast at magazines there, 
when you came out to THR, is this because you love or are interested in Hollywood or it was a magazine job that that seemed appealing to you generally? Who isn't interested in Hollywood? (laughs) Even in my, you know, in my career in New York, I often worked, obviously, at the big monthly magazines, Glamour and Cosmopolitan. You're dealing frequently with Hollywood stars and Hollywood stories. I always had a sort of greater than average interest, and I had spent a lot of time in L.A., and it's it's very seductive after 20 years in New York to uh, (laughs) have this lifestyle. But in addition, in my earlier career at big magazines, you're giving a lot of important messaging to large groups of people. You know, women's magazines really help women sort of figure out how they want to operate their lives and their families and their careers. Here, we obviously have a huge, huge reach online, but with the print magazine, we're targeting a smaller group of very, very influential people in media and entertainment, you know, so messaging to the messengers. And Mm -hmm. that's just a really unique opportunity that I've just found fascinating and has just developed another set set of tools for me. So your first swing through here, you were overseeing special projects, which I have come to know very well what those are. But for people who don't know, maybe you can explain because you continue to really be involved with those. And then also, what does it mean to be what your current position is, deputy editorial director? Just give an idea of what you've been doing during these swings through here. The first was a swing. Now now you're here. (laughs) Now I'm here. The special projects that I got involved in the first time around were things like a comedy issue, the Cannes issue, in addition to covering breaking news all the time and also following the cycles of Hollywood with the Cannes Festival and the Toronto Festival and awards season. We also really like to highlight the parts of Hollywood lifestyle that are related to the work and certainly related to the income that comes Mm -hmm. with the work, like philanthropy and art collecting and, you know, over-the-top vacationing and all those things. And we often devote special issues to those parts of the lifestyle as well, particularly philanthropy, art, design. So I, along with deputy editor Jeannie Pyun, manage a lot of those types of issues. But when I first came, that's what I did. I was just sort of exclusively working on special packages like comedy, like our reality issue. And now that I'm back in a different role, I'm, you know, a right hand to our editorial director, Matt Bellany, and just manage a lot of different things here. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to probably describe easily. One thing that has happened since you returned to THR after that first stint is that Donald Trump has entered the equation of society and therefore also of THR's coverage. How has his emergence as somebody beyond a reality show figure impacted life at THR? We did not, you know, we'll cover Barack Obama if he comes and speaks at DreamWorks Animation or something like he did, but we were not involved with his stuff day to day in the way that we are with Trump, right? That's right. And I think, you know, you said it, he he came from reality television, or he came from New York real estate, Mm -hmm. and then via reality Mm -hmm. television arrived at the White House. You know, so that really made it a story that's fully in THR's lane, his campaign, his election, and, and the many sort of tools of entertainment and PR, and to some extent, reality TV that he uses in getting his message across now. So, no, we're not a we're not a politics magazine, but this story really sits squarely because of who he is and where he comes from and how he has executed the role so far. It does really sit squarely as an entertainment story. It certainly dominates the news media, which is also an area that we cover fully. So it's changed. You know, we, we try not to get too distracted. Not every Trump story is a THR story. But, you know, when he dominates the headlines and dominates the late night shows, it is. And... 
it's a surprise every day <laughs> with him. And we, you know, we have our own, as we've said, you know, complicated stories happening here in Hollywood that many see as intersecting with his election. So it's it's something we kind of deal with every day. And just to note, we were, for better or worse, the first major magazine to put him on our cover in August 28th, 2015. Do you remember the discussions around that at the time? Because that was, at the time, I think we thought, you know, he's a character, but never thought he would be president. I think that's absolutely right. And you, we'd have to speak more directly with Janice Min, yeah. our, our then chief creative officer, to get her take on the actual interview. But as I recall it, going into it, we did not take him terribly seriously as a legitimate nominee or candidate. But after that interview, I think she came back to THR from New York with a different point of view, that there was something very compelling about him that could surprise us all. And, and it doesn't mean that did. she liked him or voted for him, but that he was he had an appeal. No, but she could she she had a different understanding of why he was getting as far as he was, and she could definitely envision a path all the way for mm-hmm. him. And no, yeah. it did not mean that she liked him. No, no, of course, <laughs> just because I know we'll hear about that. If yeah. we, <laughs> but I guess one thing though that is related to his ascent is that we've really bolstered our presence in certain arenas that we weren't in before, including DC, right? Yes, I think that's true. Actually, Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe the other day, he mentioned that the first alert that he got about the election of Doug Jones to the Alabama Senate seat was a THR blast. (laughs) A THR blast that said, you know, Hollywood celebrates Doug Jones' election. And Scarborough was just waking up and hadn't really figured out what was going on. And he thought, what are these these idiots in Hollywood doing? Don't they realize they lost? And in fact... (laughs) And there's been a number of things like that. I mean, we've had some really interesting... Stories related to him from, I think, even the Washingtonian or something did a story about the fact that we've been breaking quite a bit of the news that relates to this. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of attention for our coverage. Again, the the stories that have dominated what we've been doing in the last few weeks have yes. sort of made this recede. But yes, we've definitely got a lot of, gotten a lot of attention for our coverage. There's an increasing link between Hollywood and Washington, between Hollywood and New York. Those axes are just getting deeper And obviously, Hollywood stars and executives contribute a lot of money to major campaigns. They appear for candidates. There's always been that relationship. But it's true that a Hollywood publication probably has not covered a Washington political story as broadly and deeply as we have been doing in the last couple of years. What have the last few weeks, I guess at this point, maybe closer to two months, been like with confronting the Harvey Spring. You know, there's the Arab Spring. (laughs) It starts with one guy and it just doesn't end. And so to be dealing with that period, but also in the middle of the Oscar season, not to, you know, obviously one is much more socially important than the other, but it doesn't change the fact that we as people working at The Hollywood Reporter have to deal. It's not like one goes away because of the other. This is piled on top of what we normally have to deal with, which is itself pretty overwhelming. So for you and and from what you can tell for others here, what has this period been like? Well, I think it's probably healthy for the industry and for the culture that these stories have sort of pierced the award season bubble. Certainly, ordinarily at this time of year, we talk of nothing else <laughs> than the awards race. And this year, that's not the case. It's It's been harder for, I think, the contending films to get the kind of headlines that they normally would be getting at this time of year, even from us. At the same time, as the nominations are starting to roll out, I think 
just to be honest, there's somewhat of a relief in the community that there is another story to talk about. So it's been an unusual year. I, I've only been through three of these awards. So this will be my, my fourth award season. It's been unusual. I think it's healthy for the community. I think these stories about sexual harassment are very complicated. And we all, not just us, but obviously reporters at the New York Times and at other publications here in Los Angeles, are working really hard to tell them fairly and carefully and judiciously. And we get a lot of calls and emails. We can't tell every story. Not every story can be corroborated in the way that's necessary to get it out there. And I think everybody in the Hollywood community is looking forward to more discussion of solutions that can change the culture and systems so that we can stop telling stories about this behavior and, and create more of a context where it, it won't happen and where, you know, the focus can be on the work and the art. And, you know, you cannot legislate every every moment of human behavior, but we can definitely improve some of the systems that have fostered or at least enabled it here. So we've been talking, the general group that we were looking at when this all started, it was women in entertainment and what they've been subjected to in a lot of cases as a branch of that. I mean, entertainment journalism is certainly a branch of that, of the entertainment industry. And so I just wonder, as a woman in entertainment journalism, what has been your experience? I think here I saw where it's 57% women at The Hollywood Reporter and until the last year had both a female editorial director and publisher. But I don't know if that even necessarily means anything. So what just throughout your time in the business, what's been your experience? I was sort of shocked when I got to Hollywood. I mean, I knew I was coming here to do this job. And when I originally came here, I was coming to work for a woman. And I now work for a terrific man. Mm -hmm. But my career before this was mostly at women's publications. And I saw a lot of women in power and a lot of women very comfortable with power. And not just running my the magazines I worked for, but one of the publishing companies I worked for was run by a woman for many years. And I was a little shocked when I got to Hollywood to see that that really was more rare at least in certain arenas there are a lot of there are a lot of highly ranking female television executives and some women running studios not so much at the agencies not so much in the director's chair there are definitely areas where it's harder so it was just sort of a shock to my system but even in the time I've been here I've seen a change and a, a difficult conversation like this one can begin to engender more change and I also don't want to lose sight, and we talked about this at our own women's event a couple of weeks ago where we had Jennifer Lawrence and Angelina Jolie and some amazing women, you know, demonstrating leadership, leading the conversation, wanting to take the conversation forward. But also, it's been a kind of phenomenal year for women. Wonder Woman, mm -hmm. just for starters, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest film of the summer, launch of a huge franchise, critically acclaimed, saw some nominations, you know. Biggest new star in Hollywood, Gal Yes, Gal Gadot, Yeah. And in addition, you know, Greta Gerwig with an Oscar contending film, her first time out. Dee Rees' film, Mudbound, is, is seeing some awards attention. And really a lot of significant steps forward as we did a short a story about this. There are three women helming $100 million plus budgeted films. They all happen to be at Disney, so <laughs> other studios catch up. Okay. But Warner Brothers has Patty Jenkins working on the Wonder Woman sequel. So there's there are some very... <laughs> good news happening amidst these more difficult stories as well. And I don't personally want to lose sight of that. And I don't want the industry or women who want to work in this industry to lose sight of it either. Well, thank you for leaving us on a positive, upbeat note. And thank you for doing this. Thank you. Yeah. And now for my interview with Lisa Nishimura. 
Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 46-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how a daughter of Japanese immigrants who was on track to pursue a career in medicine instead wound up in the music industry and then in the film industry, what led to her joining Netflix in 2007, back when the company was still in the DVD-by-mail business, as a vice president of independent content acquisition, and how that job eventually morphed into one focused on original documentary and comedy programming, why she feels that Netflix's presence in 190 countries around the world and the platform's famous recommendation algorithm serve content creators and consumers every bit as much as and more so than a traditional theatrical release, why she believes that Netflix's business model of luring and retaining subscribers is tremendously served by doc content with stories that take place around the world and possess universally appealing elements like food and music, and why docu-series like Making a Murderer are thriving as never before in the era of Netflix binge-watching and social media, what it meant to her that Netflix Docs delivered the company its first Oscar nomination for The Square in 2014, its first Oscar win for White Helmets in 2017, and an incredible showing on this season's Oscar shortlists with four of the 15 doc features and two of the 10 doc shorts that have advanced to the next round of voting, plus much more. So without further ado, let's Netflix and chill, in the traditional sense of course, with Lisa Nishimura. Lisa Nishimura, one of my favorite people. Thank you very much for doing this. And we always just begin with the basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was actually born and raised in Silicon Valley, believe it or not. So born at Stanford, raised in the Bay, child of immigrants. So my father actually first came to the U.S. as a Fulbright Scholar to Berkeley, fell in love with the Bay. And then Where were your parents from originally? Japan. So my parents are a little bit older, so they were actually children in Japan during World War II. Wow. So their perspective is quite different than yeah. I think a lot of the Japanese Americans that I meet who were here in the U.S., yeah. you know, who share a lot of stories about internment camp history. Yes. They had a very different perspective. So huh. I think as folks that grew up during the war in Japan, it, it really does sort of inform you know, your trajectory. So he was extraordinarily fortunate to come to the U.S., fell in love with it. He and my mother then met back in Japan. They had my older brother. And I'm the only one uh, in the entire extended family that was born in the United States. Wow. And you grew up, English was not the first language in the home, right? Yeah, it was a pretty traditional household. <laughs> At times feeling a bit like a foreign exchange student in my own house, I'll admit. No, but it was it was it was really great. So yeah, bilingual for me, but my parents were, you know, primarily speaking Japanese in the household. What sort of a kid were you? Were were movies a big part of your life as a kid? Well, it's interesting because my father, oh, I didn't answer your earlier question. So my father is a scientist. He's a Mm -hmm. polymer chemist. My mother is a classical violinist. Mm -hmm. So I was really fortunate in that I grew up in a very, ironically, given the work that I get to do today, the company I get to work at, I am working at now, a really pretty significant cross-section of art and science. So it was a, you know, it was a pretty robust, curious, academic household, deep appreciation for the arts, Mm -hmm. I would say. But I wouldn't necessarily say that my family were big like cinephiles, mm-hmm. you know, I think they appreciated their big readers, <laughs> right, right. but, you know, really appreciated the arts overall. So yeah. when you went off to college, what was your focus and what did you imagine you would end up doing after that? I thought it was going to be medicine. The one thing that's been really consistent for me is that I've been always and forever fascinated with the human condition, you know, whether it's the mind or whether it's, 
You know, what is it inherent inside each of us that drives us to do the things that we do? Why do certain people respond and react in certain situations, whether they're situations of great joy or great stress in certain ways? Forever curious about the notion of nature versus nurture. And so I thought certainly that medicine was an area that was quite interesting, particularly the areas of psychology and psychiatry, human behavior in general. So that's what I thought. You know, the reality is there was nothing in my childhood that would have informed me that the work I get to do today was even a plausible vocation, right? <laughs> right? Like, so even though arts were really, really appreciated in the household, you were going to go and get a job, a proper job. Right. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. So where were you at school? I was at UC San Diego. UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. So you come out with your degree and yeah. you say to your parents that instead of going to medical school, you are going to do what? So it, it was sort of a weird scenario. I, I had studied in Japan, actually. So I graduated sort of off schedule. And so at the time, my father was doing a lot of international travel. And he said, hey, would you mind just if you're if you're sort of off schedule, of what you want to do with your graduate studies? Do you mind coming back to the Bay, spending some time with mom? I'm going to be traveling. And I said, absolutely no problem. So as much as I adore my mother, it took minutes before she was driving me up the wall. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I got to go do something. And I thought for sure I was going to go on to graduate school. So I didn't necessarily want to settle into you know, some sort of a vocational thing. So I literally grabbed a phone book and I thought, okay, what can I do that's not going to be what I'm going to do? Maybe hopefully in arts somehow, music maybe, film maybe, and what's close. Mm -hmm. And rifling through the phone book, I came across Wyndham Hill Records. And if you recall, it was at the time a pretty robust record label and it was based out of Palo Alto. So right there in the Bay, there weren't a lot of record labels. And what kind of music were they putting out? It was, do you remember George Winston? It was like that, that classic, like it was new age. I guess that's the best way to describe it. But you know, he did these really seminal albums, piano albums like December and the seasons. (laughs) So I called them and I said, Hey, I'm just wondering, you know, do you have any opportunities? And they were adamant. They said, okay, we have these internships, but I want to be really clear, like none of these turn into jobs. And I said, actually, that's perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Because most people were calling, trying to figure out how to get into the music business. So I said, this is perfect. 90 days, wonderful. And they said, you know, we can't pay you a lot. I said, that's totally fine. Did you have any interest in music? I loved music, actually. There was a moment in time when I was in college where I actually managed bands. Oh, really? On top of, yeah, on top of. That's pretty entrepreneurial. Yeah, it was pretty fun. It was pretty great. (laughs) So, yeah, so I ended up taking this internship, and then 90 days later, they offered me a job. And what was the job? It was to get into sort of the marketing and kind of how how music is released. You know, it's really how do you find distribution, which was an interesting world. And it was also one of the first brands that I would say ever did sort of direct-to-consumer engagement in the way that they did. So I had this job where I was heading up marketing consumer relations and back then you have to keep in mind the internet was just sort of starting Mm -hmm. so what that consisted of was a lot of opening letters Mm -hmm. from people that would say I had my child to this song it means so much to me it's out of print can you help me locate it or my daughter's getting married and you know we can't imagine her getting married to anything other than this can you help us locate the sheet music and then I had this whole bevy, this it was so funny, I had this stack of cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. And my job also was to try to answer every letter. So the whole point was like connect with right. people that love the brand. And again, uniquely, it was this brand, Wyndham Hill Records, that people just thought that every recording was done in a little log cabin in Vermont. Like that was the sentiment of it. And people really felt connected to it that way. And so they would send me these tapes and oftentimes it was the background music for the weather channel. And so they would send me these recordings where you'd hear things like, oh, high pressure system coming in from the Southeast. And then there'd be this music and then I'd have to identify it. So, but it became, 
you know, really quite fun. But it was, for me, a really remarkable first direct line to a broader base of folk to recognize how incredibly personal the art form was for people, right? They weren't saying, hey, I like this song. They were saying, this song defined Mm -hmm. a moment in my life that was really significant, or this incredibly significant moment won't be complete unless it can be the soundtrack of that moment. And, you know, I'd always sort of felt that way personally around music, of course, growing up with a mother who was a musician. Like, I always seem to have a soundtrack. Like, I think about the most seminal moments in my life, and I can think of certain moments and and songs that sort of accompany them. But that was pretty profound, I think, without even realizing that it was profound, the idea that, you know, the movement of art is, it's sort of transcended. And this company had a fan base around the world. And that was also a really interesting thing to get a foray into, was that the universal response to some of these songs, some of these artists, were truly that. That it wasn't a regional response. And I think that was a whether I knew it or not, a very prescient thing for yeah. kind of where I was going, where I was headed. So how do you then make the jump into the world of film, I believe, for the first time with Palm Pictures? Maybe you can tell people what that is as well. Sure. So Palm Pictures, you're probably familiar with Chris Blackwell. Yeah. He's quite a creative mm-hmm. force. Most people are familiar with him because he signed Bob Marley with Island Records and introduced essentially reggae to the Western right. world. But he's also responsible for signing U2 and Grace Jones and, you know, work with Tom Waits, but also on the film side. You know, Island Films was part yeah. of Kiana Squatsy. It was part of Kiss of the Spider Woman. You know, he was one of the first people to be working with Spike Lee. Like, so, you know, with with Chris, my start with Chris actually came in through the music side. So there was between Wyndham Hill And when I met Chris, Mm -hmm. I actually did international music and film distribution at another company, which was great. And I was going back and forth between the U.S. and Asia. And that was also a phenomenal experience because that was an experience where I was able to, again, understand on a global scale people's desire Mm -hmm. for film and music and just how integral it was to them. So you had certain countries that were just coming into a place like Eastern Europe, as an example, at the time, there were certain independent record stores or independent film stores that were just finally able to engage with the Western world. And the first thing they wanted to do was get music or get movies. Like you realize like that's such a human need, the notion of engaging with culture and being part of that feeling. And, you know, some of them were time capsules. In some cases, you know, I remember I, I was dealing with some countries in Eastern Europe that were just, again, being able to start to engage. And it was like, they wanted to pick up where they left off. They wanted Michael Jackson mm-hmm. as though it was brand new because they'd sort of been behind this right. wall, you know? And and again, I, I loved the fact that immediately that's what the human condition moves to. I just want to interrupt because that, so this was, you leave Wyndham Hill. I go to- What was this place? This is the place called Valley Media. Because these are the first people, it sounds like, who thought of you as somebody who should be a part of film-related stuff as well as music. Yeah. What, on what basis yeah. did they- do that. So, you know, it was really, I, you're right though. I mean, I, I made a couple of, I, a lot of different stops along yeah. the way, but Chris was really the one that said, okay, like he has such a creator mind, whether you're a filmmaker or a musician, he really trusts the instinct and the intuition. And it was really about how do I create a creative space for these people to fully manifest the thing that they're really here to do. Right. And he was, you know, in so many different ways, the opposite of what the traditional model was, which was, you know, the equivalent of giving like heavy notes because mm-hmm. it has to fit a particular type of a model or it's got to be exactly this type of runtime, etc. You know, he was really just watching him and the way he operated where I think that 
in a lot of companies you're dealing with, okay, every, you know, particularly publicly traded companies, every 91 days, you got to deliver mm-hmm. on a particular revenue scenario, not to suggest that you could ever be irresponsible to that, <laughs> but it was of equal importance to him to ensure that the creative environment was rich, mm-hmm. right? Because the thinking was that that always provided the opportunity for surprise, mm-hmm. right? That it's in the openness and the vastness of possibility that some extraordinary innovation creatively can happen. And he was a real uplifter of people. Like, I think he really believed that if you had chops, right, he was going to give you opportunity. And there were any number of times when he put opportunities in front of me where, you know, he and I had frank conversations like, you know, I haven't done this before. Right? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, you'll be fine. Right. And th- it's it's quite something to have people around you that see your acumen versus just the very specific right, right. job that you're able to do and to have the opportunity. And, you know, for me, I loved it so much. You know, I worked a lot of late hours in New York. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about film and talking about projects. And, you know, for him at Palm, our purview was really independent film, but it was also world cinema and very much in the world of documentary. And that was your first sort of foray into that. Yeah. On the production side, prior to that, you know, my previous job doing international distribution, you know, I got to see a lot of documentary and how it kind of traveled the world but on, on the production side. Yes, which was extraordinarily exciting. So how long were you at Palm Pictures? So I worked with Chris in different capacities for about a dozen years. Wow. Yeah. So I, believe it or not, was part of a team that started a small independent record label in San Francisco called Six Degrees Records, which is still around today. And Chris funded us and gave us a production and distribution deal. That's how we first met. And then I joined Palm officially in New York. And that's where the, the film component really came in in full force. Do you remember when you first ever heard the word Netflix? So when I was at Palm, the great thing is that Cindy Holland and Ted Sarandos, they actually bought the movies we made. (laughs) (laughs) For their DVD by mail. For their DVD by mail company. (laughs) Yeah, so I used to go to VSDA, right? Remember that conference way back when? And I remember hearing them talking. I remember Ted talking about this internet company that was going to deliver discs in red envelopes around, you know. And I remember half the room being totally wrapped and the other half of the room being like, what are they talking about? Blockbuster's going to eat their lunch, right? And I just remember being fascinated. I couldn't leave the room because I remember thinking, okay, first of all, this guy's really smart. Second of all, he's incredibly passionate. And third of all, like, it just felt like, okay, I understood because being on the other side of it at that point, right, understanding, working with filmmakers, knowing that the films that we were making, the documentaries we were working on and that we were creating were of incredible quality. And yet it was like everything rested on the last one one hundredth of the mile of the marathon, which was distribution, meaning at that time it was, hey, would Best Buy buy your documentary, right? How does Target feel about it? What's Walmart thinking? Like these were the things that were shifting the tides and it was all about, you'd sit in these meetings and they'd talk all about available shelf space, right? Front facings of DVDs. And it had nothing to do with the art form anymore, right? There were boxes on shelves. And I just remember thinking to myself, how do I convey to these people that are making these decisions about quote unquote shelf space, what went into this work and why it was resonant and why it was important, why it was deserving, And here was a person that was talking about this idea of, no, 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 there's infinite shelf space, right? And we're going to figure out how to personalize and allow people the opportunity to understand what this film is all about and give it a shot in a way that was incredibly convenient. And so from the creator side of it, you had to listen, 
right? This felt like such a fascinating, interesting opportunity. And so we got to know each other. At that know, conference or? There and then just through, you know, them, Netflix buying, yeah. buying our DVDs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, you know, I always appreciated, again, just how smart people were, but also just how much they knew about the films. Yeah. Right. How much they knew about. And we were working with auto directors from all over the world. Like we were, you know, they were buying Claude Chabrol films as an example, <laughs> but they knew what they were talking about. Right. So I was like, what is happening here? This is a little bit different. So that's how we first met. And how did they convince you to come over? And I guess 2007. That's an interesting story. So what had happened up until that point was you have to keep in mind sort of the genesis of how Netflix kind of came to be when it first arrived. You know, you can imagine the major studios weren't necessarily convinced out of the gate. And so the purchasing process was quite interesting in that, you know, I think there was a time way, way, way back when we had people that were going to the likes of the Walmarts and what was then Price Club to actually buy discs and open them up and then take the discs out and then put them in envelopes and send them out. And then the next genesis of that was going to uh, what are called one-stop distribution companies, right? That buy from all the studios and then they sell to all the different mom and pop shops. And that way the studios can get to the scale without worrying about it or worrying about, you know, they're focused on the big buyers. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think because of that, you know, the independent studios who are always the most innovative were eager and interested in trying to figure out, you know, what is this Netflix company? And so they were willing to get into business, which is, I think, ended up being a wonderful thing for us mm-hmm. because as a company, we became extraordinarily known for having a very rich library and a very rich offering of independent film, of foreign film, of categories of content that were not dominated right. by the major studios, including documentary as an example. And then I think what started happening was you would see that the volume of buying that was happening through these one-stop distributors would increase right over time. And I think the major studios started to notice and say, ah, who's this company that's mm-hmm. buying a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and never returning, right? Because right? we would buy the discs right. and we would keep them for forever. And so Ted, I think foresight with great foresight said, okay, you know, we're going to start working directly with all these major studios, which is incredibly exciting. And those deals are going to get bigger and more complex. Here we have hundreds and hundreds of independent studios and partners that have been with us from the start. How do we make sure that they continue to get the attention and the focus that they certainly deserve? Because this continues to be an incredibly important backbone of what Netflix offers. And so what he did was he consolidated all of those independent studios. And at the time, those studios were from all over the world, right? right? And I think they were trying to figure out who might actually love this job, have a background <laughs> in independent, love foreign, love documentary, all of that. Right. And I happened to be in LA, honestly, talking to them about some of my films when Cindy said, so how happy are you in New York? I said, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> right. She said, no, no, how happy are you? I said, what are you talking about? She said, why don't you talk to Ted? And so it was fast. I think that was a Friday. And then I was on the phone with Ted that afternoon and he started talking to me about this opportunity. I flew back to New York. I think I met with Reed on a Monday <laughs> and I think they put an offer for it on Wednesday. Wow. And, yeah. And the title originally there was VP Independent Content Acquisition. Correct. So that was really, as you say, sort of overseeing these relationships with right. content creators around the world right. and handling acquisitions. Correct. Which was what an incredible opportunity. Because I, again, this was without me really recognizing how important it was going to be for what I get to do today. It was really in many ways the first global position, mm-hmm. right? Because you're buying from producers and studios and filmmakers all over the world just for the U.S. service. But what an education into the fact that if you make it available on an agnostic platform that's personalized just for you, turns out people love foreign cinema. turns out they love documentary. It's just a matter of meeting them where they are, right? And so that was an incredible 
education. And so I had the great experience of you know, dealing with, I think, four to 500 independent studios oh and production entities around the world. Wow. Yeah, which was wonderful because at the time on DVD, you know, we really had an approach of completeness. So we really had just about everything. And it was thrilling to see what people were excited yeah. about. And so I got to see that migration from global for just the U.S. service on disc to then, of course, migrating onto streaming. Well, that's there. what I want to ask you about because yeah. it seems like, I don't know, I guess that would have happened around the end of the first decade of the 2000s, so a few years into your time there. And it seems like the real game changer for that separated Netflix from anyone else who had ever thought of trying to do this or, or tried to do it was this algorithm, which has obviously been honed and honed over the years and evolved. But can you explain why that was so important and why it continues to be so important for separating Netflix from, from anyone else? Yeah, I think the thing that is remarkable, since we're going to, let's just jump forward to Netflix yeah. today, is that you have a platform that is format agnostic. So think of it as, you know, let's let's talk about the documentaries. They're shoulder to shoulder on the service with the biggest movies, with our biggest series. And so that's a wonderful experience. In most cases, you have things that are quite segregated by format, right, or genre. Everything's personalized specifically to you. And the way that our technologists have sort of evolved it, which is quite phenomenal, is they review who you are every 24 hours. So they understand that your tastes on a Tuesday are going to be different than your tastes on a Friday, and that your tastes on your big screen television in your living room might be different than your tastes if you're watching something on your iPad, as an example. So it's really understanding and seeking to better understand who you are in those moments of the day. And because of that, most people, you know, they don't have a specific you know, allegiance to a particular format, right? They want to feel a certain way, right? And so the idea that through the algorithm, through the ability to continuously refresh and to re-represent who you are based on what you're telling us, based on your actual behavior, the ability for us to match your moods and your sensibilities and sort of what you're excited about, what you're delighted about has only increased over time. And so that has really changed the game because it allows the different sort of formats to present just based on the tonalities, not based on any of sort of what I think can be arbitrary definitions like series versus feature versus documentary and versus has comedy. elevated these ones that had been treated like niche things like documentaries, Correct. right? I mean, because you said early on where basically just because a person doesn't go to see a documentary on a Friday night, it's not a reflection on the film. It's a reflection that maybe a documentary isn't a film that a couple's going to want to see on a date night, but in another context, they would. Right. So that was in response to somebody asking about documentary and you know, the traditional distribution model. And what I was suggesting is, you know, as, as an absolute lover of the form, you know, people will point to documentary theatrical performance and say, well, clearly this is not a mainstream category or people are not interested. And my defense of that vehemently is, no, 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 no. There is a massive audience and a massive love for documentary. I think that number might be reflective of a very specific moment in time. I was giving the example of a Friday night date night after the week may have been quite challenging. You might want to go see a rom-com, but that does not actually mean that you don't want to see a documentary. It might mean that you don't want to see it at that moment. So the huge game-changing piece for us is that documentary is available 24-7 on demand, and we're going to present it to you at the moment when we think you're actually going to love it and be the most amenable to it. And we've seen that play out in the numbers. You know, we've seen that 
I think close to three quarters of our membership base has engaged with documentary. Wow. That's a massive, wow. massive number. When you think about our membership base, you think about multi-person households, you're talking about three to 400 million sets of eyeballs and 75% of them have watched a documentary. I just feel like that's a complete shift. And certainly I believe more indicative of the promise and the opportunity for documentary. So when along the line did you change from being VP independent content acquisition to VP original documentary and comedy programming? When did it actually become, wait, let's make sure that we have a full focus on those specific areas of our content? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things I got to say. I, you know, people often ask me, my gosh, you've been there over a decade. Why? (laughs) You know, and for me, the exciting thing is it sounds very cliche, but it is incredibly accurate, which is in the over 10 years, I've never had the same day twice. And I've had an incredible amount of opportunities. So to think about the, I think about sort of three major evolutions going from buying DVD in the US Mm -hmm. only to then going into streaming, right? And then going into international, Right. right? I remember... We were launching Canada and being kind of nervous about that. You know, now we're in around <laughs> yeah, the, the three countries. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah we're 190 <laughs> countries around the world. And then the third evolution being, you know, going from the licensing of finished film and TV to obviously original programming. So what happened was, you know, Cindy Holland, Ted Sarandos launched original series content, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously. It was actually, was there something before House of Cards? There was Lily Hammer. That's right. right, right, Yeah, Lily Hammer, and then House of Cards, and then Orange is the New Black. And I remember Ted coming in and saying, I think this original programming thing might stick. (laughs) And the thing that was really exciting about original programming wasn't just that we were getting into original programming. It was with a great amount of thought to how can we actually bring innovation? How can our unique platform actually benefit the creative process, benefit the consumer experience, and potentially benefit the business. And so on the series side, what was fascinating was you had, as an example, a real traditional piloting model, which could be viewed, and many people debate the notion of whether it's a highly efficient or inefficient (laughs) business, right? I think that creatively, it's tough where you're trying to put your entire arc of your narrative into one episode, as an example. You know, you might be beholden to the performance being attached to what was the show before you, or will this work for your particular advertising set, as an example. And I don't think it's necessarily reflective of what that particular creative group is capable of doing. And so I think what was unique about what Cindy and Ted did with House of Cards, as an example, was take all of those integers out, right? To go to David Fincher and say, We're not going to pilot anything. We're going to go full season order. In fact, we're going to go full two season order. We're going to give you free reign over your episodic length. Assume an intelligent audience, meaning that they've either just watched the preceding episode or have full access to do so. So you don't have to spend 20% of episode two re-explaining the previous episode, right? But think about it from a writing and creative perspective. That means instead of sort of zigzagging back and forth, you can really go far and deep in your character development, in your story arc, not just across one episode, but across two seasons, it changes the entire paradigm. You know, knowing that you don't have to write for outros into commercials and then intros back in to try to like reset the tone. You know, again, it was this notion of creating a scenario where for the creatives, it was the most robust and supportive environment possible. And then from the membership joy side of it, You know, we had been sitting on so much data from our days of DVD. When we got into DVD box set buying, Mm -hmm. 
the thing that was amazing, because you, you think of back in the day of your DVD queue, you had 200 slots, you put them in the order right. that you wanted. And what we started noticing very quickly was people would say, one, two, three, four, five, and they'd order the five discs of a whole box set, which surprised us. And the velocity, right, the rate at which they were consuming them and flipping them back to us was so fast. Right. So it was our first sort of indicator into this idea of binge viewing, right? right? Yeah. Like, wow, people really want this. Right. Because I think people thought, you know, is it an artifact of the way it's presented once a week, that that's how people like it, or do people actually like it and that's how we should present it? And so the data from all of that incredible DVD, TV on DVD box set information told us, no, actually people love having control over the way that they get to watch their episodes. And so that was, people forget, but at that time it was so novel, this idea of releasing all the episodes Everything at once. once. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was crazy because you had half the industry, I remember the time, saying, my gosh, that's so innovative, that's so f fascinating. Mm -hmm. And other people really questioning whether we understood how television worked. <laughs> you know, but that's that's the thing that's been so exciting is the ability to be innovative because right. we're so free of those major constraints of advertising, right. of time slots, of those kinds of things. So in seeing the success of that, Ted came and said, what other categories of content do you think if we migrated towards original production could we also bring incredible consumer joy and then on top of that you know help sort of the space and the industry and the creators and it was half a second before i was saying documentary and stand-up comedy which ironically are the two areas that I, yes. I get to swim in and you know for many of the reasons we just talked about about documentary and sort of the traditional markers of quote-unquote success yeah. i just said you know what you're seeing with respect to box office numbers of documentary i know is not reflective of the potential audience and so he said, absolutely, we should try to figure this out because documentary up until that point was being funded in such a disaggregated model, right? The way you traditionally were funding for a documentary, aside from writing a million grant requests, right, right. was to go into the global broadcast market and try to get a little money from, you know, British television and Japanese television, Danish television, et cetera. You're cobbling mm -hmm. this money together. And you've got, you know, directors and producers spending all their time doing that versus really focusing and thinking about the creative that they're going to make. And they've also now taken money from so many sources that you have a lot of chiefs yeah. with a lot of opinions on what that piece should be. Because the only places where, where you might once in a blue moon get full financing would be what, PBS and HBO? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Who anybody and everybody in the documentary <laughs> world certainly owes right. a huge debt to. Right. But that's absolutely right. But they couldn't fund everything. Right. So a, a good chunk of it was coming out of foreign. Right. And in most cases up until that time, I mean, it was near um, impossible to conceive of a documentary releasing in every market in the world. Like it was a patchwork. As it, I mean, I don't think it probably had ever happened. It right? had never it had never happened. And the big game changer for us, because we knew the velocity and the plan to go completely global. So the thing that Ted and I discussed was the thing that's unique about documentary is what it incites in you, the feeling that incites within you, whether it's this notion of inspiration or excitement or more curiosity, or in some cases, outrage, and people really want to connect with other people. So we had this wonderful amalgamation of things happen, which was growing to be a global platform. You know, we're the only place where when a documentary releases a Netflix original, it literally turns on in 190 countries simultaneously. Which right? is the main counter argument for anyone who says, well, but Netflix won't give you a theatrical release. Nobody that gives you a theatrical release can put you in 190 countries, right? We're all about consumer choice. So for a very good number of the documentary features, you'll see, you know, they've played major festivals. Many of them have had theatrical releases. But the whole point is 
going to exactly where the consumer is and lowering the bar of entry, making it incredibly easy for people to find and to engage with the content. And if you talk to any documentarian, right, they're a very unique type yes. of filmmaker. They're my favorite <laughs> filmmaker. Right. They're so smart, so passionate, and you know, really, they want to be recognized, they want to be seen, they obviously want to be fairly compensated. Mm -hmm. And then the most important thing is they want an audience, right. right? They want to reach people, they want to touch people. And what's happened is concurrently to this is obviously the massive rise of social media. Mm -hmm. So now you have a global platform in Netflix where you have 190 countries turning on with your documentary. And then at the same time, social media doesn't know geographic or time zone barriers, right? Previously to us getting into original content, you had territories that were either never going to have access mm -hmm. to a film, a TV series, or a documentary. And now everyone's got access to it simultaneously, and they can take to social media and engage. And you saw that happening. Making a Murder is a yes. pretty fantastic example. Okay, I don't want to say that. Because that deserves a lot of attention. But okay. let's just, before we go any further with documentaries, I want to just give a couple of moments to the comedy side of this yes. because yes so we know that you had been dealing with documentaries in these previous jobs had you dealt with comedy only as a fan so yeah. i loved comedy I used to go see comedy yeah. a lot but when i took the role in 07 in addition to independent foreign cinema documentary stand-up comedy was also a category that i got to license for the service so part of that 500 vendor studio set there were a lot of folk that were making stand-up comedy so that was ex that was really really exciting and it me. seems like it was something that maybe even before a lot of these other things we've talked about that that ted was passionate about because i read that in 06 when it was still dvd by mail that was when he personally executive produced this zach galifianakis yes comedy special so it was obviously of interest to them but i mean the idea that you guys would one day have a late night talk show like the broadcast networks or go up against and really surpass the HBOs and Comedy Central's as the place for stand up comedy. That was always a goal from the time you showed up there. Oh, I don't think you can say in 07 we had that in Not mind. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that we were a rapidly evolving innovative space and what we saw was an opportunity, right? So comedy is another great example. So I absolutely love this craft and form. And I often get the question, like, why in the world would one person manage what seems like two radically disparate groups? And my answer to this is that if you think about it, the best stand-up comedians, the best documentarians are truly social commentators of the day, mm -hmm. right? What they do, I think, better than almost anybody is to take everything that's swirling in the world and they synthesize it and they present it in a way that we can actually engage, right? The best documentarians, they do so through first-person narrative, right? They take us into an experience, and they allow us to actually feel and to really ascertain for ourselves, given a particularly new world and causes and conditions around that you might not have any other access to, you know, a new point of view, right? Mm -hmm. And in stand-up comedy, they make some of the most controversial, mm -hmm. the most important issues of our day safe, through laughter, right? And like I say, the best of them, like you're sitting in the room and all of a sudden you're laughing with everybody else and you'll have this like aha moment where they're speaking to a feeling or an emotional point of view and you're like, wow, that's me. And then later on that night, you're brushing your teeth, getting ready to go to bed and then a little light goes off in your head and you're like, wait, there's another meaning to this, right? Like these sort of stories inside stories. So I love their minds. Like if you ever have a cocktail party and there's Comedians there in their documentary, by midway through the party, they're like huddled in a corner just going and That's talking great. and talking and talking because I think they have really similar minds. But comedy also, mm -hmm. 
as an example, you know, had sort of arrived to a place where you had comics going out on the road and touring as their major source of income, and then they would tape an hour, right? And to your point, you would go to HBO, you would go to Comedy Central as an example. And at the time, you know, you'd have a network broadcast moment, and that was exciting, but then it would move on and there'd be another moment, right? right? Um, And so that was an exciting opportunity for us. We started licensing that content in second and third windows. So we started to get these shows. And we understood that actually people really love discovering them and finding these comics who, again, when you find a comic that you love, like you follow them to the ends of the earth because they sort of represent your point of view. So we saw a huge opportunity to say, okay, what happens if we go into original programming and comedy and again, release globally, Mm -hmm. right? Because traditionally it was, oh, these will only work in the United States. This is English language. And also what would happen if if they were available perpetually, right? right? And so what we started hearing from the comics just out on the road in the clubs is in the case where we were licensing some of their shows in second and third windows, they were starting to see bigger and bigger audiences. So they go from playing small clubs to medium clubs, medium clubs to big clubs, big clubs to theaters. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that they could point to that had changed was that their special had gone on to our service. So... Making the move to original, right. right, which meant global distribution, perpetual availability, we started to see that in spades. You know, one of my favorite stories was, you know, Bill Burr, the comic, mm-hmm. calling me and saying, hey, did you do anything in Scandinavia? And I said, <laughs> well, why do you ask? He goes, because I just got asked to come out there to gig for the first time, and I've never been there in my life. And I said, yeah, we actually turned Turn it on in there. Scandinavia. <laughs> so for us, the virtuous cycle of being able to see comics feel the direct response to having the special available on Netflix perpetually on a global basis and that driving an overall increase in their business and their fan base. I mean, for us, that's the virtuous cycle. That's the dream. And it sounds like there was an actual formal initiative to focus on stand-up starting in like 2013. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's been very interesting to me that there are these big plays that you guys have made where, and I know you you don't comment on numbers, but it's Mm -hmm. been reported Forty million for two Chris Rock specials, hundred million for two Jerry Seinfeld plus comedians and cars, things like that. But and many other great stand-up folks, Chappelle, Schumer, Morgan, on and on and on. But then you've also, I wonder if it was deliberate that you bet on some of these young guys like Aziz mm-hmm. when he wasn't Aziz, and kind of a few, two or three specials with him, and then it's almost like a farm system for your own narrative programming where he now ends up doing Master of None for you. Is that purely coincidental or is there some thought to that? We actually gave that some thought. Yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the dream has always been how do we create an environment where the best creators feel like they can come and do their best work and that they can do it agnostic of format, right? If you're a great mind, if you're a great writer, if you're a great performer, my guess is that you're going to be able to do that across a lot of different formats. And you'll see that cross-pollination in the most brilliant ways. This is a wonderful example of that. And I think that the idea that, you know, as a company on our side of, of the equation, you know, we are extraordinarily collaborative. So, you know, we're very sort of counter to what you hear about other um, operations as an example that are quite siloed. I mean, I am in constant conversations with my fellow folks in series, in feature film, in talk, right? We're all trying to figure out, like, how can we create a world that is the most exciting mm-hmm. for our talent partners? And so, you know, we do start almost every meeting saying, so what's exciting and what are you thinking about? Sort of right. drop the limitations right. of the traditions and talk to us about what it is that you want to 
what you want to create. So moving to documentaries now, it started out, you guys were licensing, I know, a lot of other people's. And then it's the original doc output has steadily increased starting again, I think, in 2013. By Correct me if these numbers are wrong, but I read one in 2013, seven in 2014, eight in 2015, 19 in 2016. And I don't know how many this year it ended up being, but it's more than 19. So talk about how this evolved from, I had vaguely recalled that Gerald Dreams of Sushi was sort of a turning point. I remember seeing this movie. It was a great little doc. There were like three people in the theater at the 2011 Santa Barbara Film Festival. And I thought this is awesome, but that was, it was never going to be seen again. And then you guys licensed it and it was in a number of ways, not just as generally about docs, but about food in docs, particularly sparked some ideas, right? Right. So that is directed by David Gelb, who is an absolute phenom. So yes, we, we, we fell in love with the film, we licensed it, and it became quite the movie. And so David Gelb came to us in 2014 with an idea for actually what turned out to be our very first doc series, Chef's Table. And what we loved about it is that we knew, we knew that our our membership base loved food. But we also knew that food is an incredibly broad category. You've got shiny floor food Mm -hmm. shows, you've got contests, you've got how-tos. And no one had approached it from this perspective in a wildly elevated, incredibly beautiful, but very first-person experiential way. And we were just, we were really riveted when we sat down and talked to him. And he had such a clear sort of sense and creative vision that it gave us the confidence to greenlight it as an original Netflix documentary series. And it has gone on, obviously. We were very committed to it. We've got yeah. more seasons coming. But it seems like food and wine and things that you guys have done a lot with also maybe serve a, a larger consideration that's maybe greater for you than for some of the other people in the doc arena, like in HBO or whatever, or let's just say like Sony Classics or somebody that you guys have to constantly feed the interests of subscribers and appeal to hopefully new subscribers all around the world. And what are things that can do that? And food of all sorts appeals to people of all sorts everywhere, right? So is that why food has become actually maybe one of the more common themes of your docs? I mean, there's a huge range, but it seems like you go back to that. Yeah, we do a lot in food. And I think tonally, we recognize there are a lot of different ways to approach food. And you'll see next year that we do so in some very different Mm. fashions. I wish I could talk about it, but I'll come back and tell (laughs) you all about them. But I think it was just, it really was the cinematic and director vision that that Gelb had around Chef's Table that we recognized and realized this is going to be something totally different Mm -hmm. in the space. And we absolutely talked about the fact that people really identify with their culture's food. Like it's a really basic human instinct, you know, the notion of nourishing someone that you care about, that you love. And, you know, there's a real national pride around the way you use local food, produce, whatnot, to create something that's distinct and unique. And it's a really joyful process. And seeing it executed at the very best level is really quite, you know, awe-inspiring. And so we talked a lot about how do we think about casting, right? How do we think about, again, you're very insightful, the notion of it being for a global audience and for people feeling like this looks like and feels like and represents us, right? Because that's a massive priority for what it is that we're doing is, you know, as we continue to grow, you know, this was an interesting year, an exciting year where now over half of our membership is coming ex-US, right? And that's really significant. And we're very, very 
responsive to that, you know, and it's important. And we really think a lot about ensuring that authentic voices are supported and that authorship Mm -hmm. in particular is radically important, you know, and for us in documentary, we're very fortunate in that, you know, the first documentary we did was an Arabic language documentary, The Square from Jahan Najem. So we've always been in the global world of storytelling and documentary. And that's not coincidental that, that no. was, the, you're thinking when, A, it's a great, first thing, it's got to be great, but it's also added value if it's something that has international appeal. Certainly. But I think for us, I think in some cases, there are there are folks that are making the calculation and saying, wow, that's a foreign language or wow, that's right. For us, that's never been an issue. For us, it's about, is it a quality film? You know, in the case of Jahan, she's an incredible female documentarian. Half the film is in Arabic. It's a brilliant film. We were so excited about it and pursued it very, very aggressively. And that was your first Oscar nomination as a company, right, for that documentaries. Was, yeah. That introduces this whole, you know, it's actually, I think every year since then, you've been represented by at least one nominee in that category. In 2014, you guys partnered with DiCaprio on Virunga, mm-hmm. and I know then made a deal to do other things with him, but that film en route to the nomination got a theatrical release. Mm-hmm. How do you decide, because you're again, when you're putting out 19 or more mm-hmm. a year, how do you decide which ones do or don't get a theatrical release? We work closely with the filmmakers. You know, we're really transparent about the process. I think that often you'll have films that release at the festival level, and you'll get a really immediate read from folks such as yourself, as an example, (laughs) we really, really focus primarily on ensuring that we're giving complete equanimity in that global audience. That's the most impactful, most important thing. That's where you're going to see the potential for millions and millions and millions of eyeballs to be watching these incredibly important films in perpetuity. But we are all about supporting filmmakers in their endeavor to reach all of the audiences that they possibly can. That's why we support, you know, the festival releases. Right, right. We release a, quite a large number of them theatrically. Mm-hmm. We qualify, obviously. Yep. We ensure that we are inside all the qualification mm-hmm. rules set, as set by the yep. Academy. And there are some cases as well where you'll have an exhibitor who is loving a film and wants to extend, and we'll do that as well. So, you know, again, for us, we think about it from, you know, the consumer and the membership side, having them have the opportunity to choose how they want right. to engage and, and, and watch their films. And then, you know, the awards piece is important to us because it's so important to our filmmakers, right? We acknowledge and recognize that for their remarkable efforts and work, having the recognition in the award space can be, you know, career altering. And it's been incredibly important for us to be able to have the resourcing and the support internally so that our filmmakers know that we have the infrastructure to support them in that pursuit. And so and we've also, been also like when you guys I think you have billboards, I think it's Wilshire and Fairfax and different places where you'll promote mm-hmm. documentaries. You don't see that with too many other documentaries getting that kind of exposure in other other ways. But I would assume that part of that is that, you know, every distributor of content has a different reason for why they care about Oscars. You're saying part of it is to support the filmmakers, of course, but also I would assume that when you're putting out a for your consideration billboard or something, you're driving people. It's not just that, but you can drive them to the platform and other docs and whatever. So there's multiple values. But one of your two 2015 eventual nominees, What Happened Miss Simone, the music rights for that one must have been off the charts. So what made it worth it to you to get into that? 
you know, that ended up getting nominated along with Winter on Fire that year. Yeah, that was quite a year. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it's Nina Simone, right? An incredibly seminal story who she was just nominated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after so many years. So that's a thrill. It's Liz Garbus. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a remarkable filmmaker. So the opportunity to tell, you know, the story of Nina Simone, who I think in so many ways was so misunderstood. And people who were in the music industry didn't know her political side of her life. People in the world of politics didn't understand her family life. Like she was incredibly complex and progressive and frankly, way ahead of her time. And so it was, you know, it was a conflux of a lot of things that came together. Certainly Liz, Mm -hmm. the fact that Nina's family and the estate was on board, that was of incredible importance. You know, many people had tried to make this movie before. And I think that, you know, it was a combination of patience and incredible work done by the producers. It was Liz Garbus together with Radical came to us, having had multiple conversations with the estate, including those issues that you bring up with respect to music. to say, listen, we're going to actually have a path to tell a really complete and whole story. And that's what made it really exciting. And for me, you know, I had a real sense, perhaps this is where the music background really helped to understand what she represented globally. You know, I know personally how she is so revered internationally in Japan. She's a god, you know, in Africa and France, you know, many parts of Europe. So, you know, that was exciting as we were continuing to expand internationally, certainly to your earlier point about something like Chef's Table. Do we focus on the international appeal of it 100 percent? That's interesting. The 2016 nominee, we're getting up to the big year that you've had now. 2016 nominee was the one you partnered with Ava DuVernay on, 13th, about mass incarceration. Yes. Wound up becoming the first stock ever to open the New York Film Festival, which is a much warmer reception than can or certain others they get you maybe the others will eventually get get on board but yeah that film was extraordinary yeah well then that one she says was because you reached out yeah that was again calling her and saying you know what do you want to do I mean, she has a fascinating <laughs> career i mean talk yeah. about the ultimate and multi-hyphenate Publicist right to all this yeah. directed a film so self-made right. so driven so creative and just rather unstoppable i've never met a person that actually manufactures time i don't know how she <laughs> does it but you know what was exciting was you know seeing that she had started in documentary then she had gone into narrative and you could just tell she had such an impassioned point of view and that's what you really want in a director somebody that's got a really clear vision and a strong point of view and just an undying need to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And so we started talking and I said, you know, what is the thing that you really, really care about, what you want to talk about? And, you know, you see the themes in all of her work, yeah. right? It's very clear, very impassioned, very informed. And so what she wanted more than anything was the freedom and the time and the resources to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what we talked about. So, you know, I would check in with her now and again, but she was just out there doing interviews, you know, I contacted her, I think towards the end of when she was on Selma. So she's always got, you know, a hundred plates spinning, but I could tell that something was catching fire there. And then we came together and she said, okay, I've shot all these interviews. So this preceded Selma. No, it was happening after. Yeah, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, towards, yeah, exactly. Wow. So that's the other thing is the luxury of time yeah, that yeah. we're allowed to give to our filmmakers to really find the voice. And for her, she had the great benefit of sitting with, you know, some of the greatest experts in the world, yeah. whether it's, you know, Dr. Angela yeah. Davis or talking to Brian Stevenson yeah. or, you know, Henry Louis Gates, like, and really trying to formulate 
you know, what is the thesis of this? And that's when she said, you know, I think I cracked the code. But it was the iterative process right. of that and also giving her the freedom to say, how do you want to tell it? You know, is this a multi-episodic? Is this a feature? You know, her eventually getting to a place where she said, I'm going to challenge myself to do this in under 100 minutes because I, I know it's not easy, but we're going to make it hyper entertaining right. and engaging and let's let's figure it out. So that was a very iterative, highly collaborative process which was fantastic we should note that at the same oscar ceremony at which she was nominated for that film your short about syria white helmets Mm -hmm. became the first netflix doc ever to win an oscar which must have been a pretty big deal for you but there's also another award called an emmy which you guys dominated with something that stop me if this is wrong but i can't think of any netflix doc in any form series feature whatever that blew up the way that Making a Murder did. This is just to remind people, 10-part docuseries, first ever produced by Netflix, coming on the heels of sort of the breakout of long-form content. I guess it started earlier that year with maybe the Jenks and even before that with Serial or whatever. But you guys took it to new heights in December 2015. It went on your platform right before the holiday break, so people had time to just binge the hell out of it and did. How did that one originate, and did you ever imagine that it could become what it became? I don't think you can ever imagine that kind of (laughs) response. So it started in 2014. I met the filmmakers, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demas, and we had a meeting that was set that ended up just, you know, it was meant to be like a 30-minute meeting that went on for hours. And I was so struck by the level of commitment that these two women had put forth with this project, which started out as a graduate thesis project for them, that I think that they were going to go and, you know, shoot essentially a short. They were both at Columbia Film School and be done with it. And then they ended up going to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, very deftly getting access into the courtroom, being part of the, the press circle and really diving into this incredible story. I mean, this is the thing that I live for in documentary is that it is so outlandish the course of events that had happened that I think if it was a fictional series, you know, a person would look at it and ask you to rewrite it because it was too much, yeah. right? And they were able to really, really just be there and observe. And the thing that struck me was the innovation in their style was that they really allowed the viewer to sit and be in the room. So you really felt like you were in the you were in the interrogation room with Brendan Dassey with those two cops. You were in the courtroom as you were hearing Ken Kratz make his case. Like you were really in these rooms. They had managed to really put together this very sort of complete access. At the time that I had met them, I'd asked them, you know, talk to me about the history. You've been working on this for a long time. And they had been told multiple times from various folks that there was some interest mm-hmm. if they could figure out how to make it a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And anyone who's watched the 10 episodes knows, right. like, how could you possibly do this justice in, in anything almost shy of the 10 episodes? And so at the time, I think that we met, I think it was contemplated as seven episodes, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people don't know is that the conversation that we had actually preceded the formal launch of the Netflix original documentary initiative. We took wow. a meeting and we started having this conversation. And this is why, you know, I I feel such, for a million reasons, such warmth towards these filmmakers. Yeah. But they took a real shot yeah. with Netflix. They took a shot with me where I said, listen, I'm in the midst of launching an initiative inside Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like what you're seeing happening. It was just, you know, the start of Orange and Houses and right. uh, House of Cards. I said, but for a documentary. And, you know, they took the bet. 
And so what we did was allow them, again, sort of the time and the space and the resources. And what started out as seven episodes went to eight, went to nine, and eventually became 10. And I don't think any of those 10 episodes are the same run length. I mean, that's what I love about it, right? Because we said this is so wildly serialized. Don't feel like you have to hit a time marker. Run the narrative arc to exactly where it should end. And then let's figure out how to pick it up in the next. And so, yeah, that was, you know, an extraordinary process. So this brings us to 2017. Last week, we learned that four of this year's 15 films that have been shortlisted for the Best Documentary Feature Oscar are Netflix Docs, Chasing Coral, Icarus, One of Us, and Strong Island. And then this week, we learned that two of the 10 films shortlisted for the Best Documentary Short Oscar are Netflix Docs as well, Heroin and Ram Dass Going Home. First, congratulations. And second, can you just react a little bit to that and, and summarize for people who maybe or tease these out for people who perhaps haven't seen them yet. Sure. Well, wildly humbling. And I think it's such a reflection of the rich and deep and incredibly talented filmmakers that we, I mean, truly have the pleasure of working with. And, you know, we really, in this environment with our feature films, make a very, very concerted effort to ensure that each of the filmmakers sort of occupy a unique space and sort of subject matter. So each of these, what I love about this is that All of the filmmakers are so wildly talented, but the stories that they tell are incredibly unique and quite different, you know, which is exciting. It's a really interesting shortlist this year. You know, Chasing Coral, Jeff Orlowski, most people know him from his previous film, Chasing Ice, unstoppable as an individual, as a filmmaker and wildly innovative. And, you know, what he and his team did as far as creating, literally inventing a brand new camera that he was able to place deep underneath the sea Mm -hmm. to capture what he knew was happening, but he knew that most people didn't have access to, which is these mass bleaching events of coral reefs all around the world. And, you know, there's an astute line in the film where they say, you know, the biggest challenge with getting people to understand and to care about what's going on in the ocean is that from the surface, when you're standing on the beach and looking out at the beautiful water, it all looks fine from the surface, right? So he knew, like he did with Chasing Ice, where he captured, you know, the largest glacial calving event ever, that you had to show people. It had to be in picture, it couldn't be on a chart, right? And they did that with such incredible emotion and you really kind of fall in love with coral, which are animals, you know, it's it's remarkable. So I think just from the pure cinematic perspective and frankly from the real challenges that they faced making the film, I am so pleased to see that, you know, the peer set and the doc branch, you know, recognize that film. And then there's Icarus. There's Icarus. Wow, Icarus, all over the headlines. Obviously, December 5th, the International Olympic Committee formally banned the Russian team from the upcoming Olympics in 2018. And in looking at that report, what's quite remarkable is Gregory Ochenkov, who is the key character in in Icarus. It was his whistleblowing specifically, and you actually see it unfold in the film. You know, it's remarkable to look and see, wow, that hard drive and that laptop that I can see on the screen is the direct evidence that really was key critical to driving this decision to remove Russia from the Olympics. I mean, to be part of something that's literally unfolding and has global consequence, you know, there are headlines every week is really quite something. And Brian Fogel, to have the sense of mind to keep filming and to really sort of shift and understand that something much bigger and greater was evolving around Uh him and to capture it all again remarkable one of us ah Heidi and Rachel Mm -hmm. oh my gosh these filmmakers (laughs) they're uncanny in their ability to find these worlds 
that are sort of in the darkness, right? In the case of one of us, the notion of entering into a community that lives amongst us and that we know so very little about and to shine light and to do so through deeply personal stories and to develop a level of trust with their characters, with their subjects, to allow us in and to really sort of reveal these truths that I think are so incredibly powerful. They do it in, in an incredible fashion. You saw their work in, in Jesus Camp yeah. as an example. Their ability to do this time and time again is really uncanny. They're great. And then yeah. Strong Island? Strong Island. Ugh, Yancey Ford. I mean, this is decades in the making, this film, and so remarkably personal heartbreakingly personal and i i know in his path in the filmmaking you know this is the story of the death of his brother the murder and sort of the who gets to own that narrative who gets to explain the course of those events and his undying sort of commitment to understand what happened in those events and to explain when these things happen, the consequences upon the family, on the fabric of being, you know, the institutions and how they react to these kinds of things as they, you know, continue to seek answers. So, again, such a deeply personal and powerful film. And heroin. We got a, it's short, but it deserves equal time. Yes. Elaine Sheldon has done something remarkable with heroin. She follows three women in West Virginia who are dealing directly on the front lines of this opioid epidemic, which is absolutely crippling this nation. You're seeing multi-generational casualties in the United States, but absolutely depicted in this town in West Virginia. And you see it through the eyes of a fire chief who is desperately trying to ready her community of firefighters and paramedics with the care services that they need for their on-the-spot calls. You have a judge trying to figure out how do we not make it just punitive? How do we actually help people recover? How do we actually assist them in what is clearly a disease state in addiction? And through a woman who has sort of a street ministry where she goes out on the streets and really tries to help these women who are now, because of their addiction on the road, living on the streets and giving them food and care and trying to get them shelter. And what I love is you have a female director telling the story of three remarkably powerful women who are collaborating and really making systemic change in their city. And if we can use that as a model for the nation that is desperate need, you know, with this epidemic. And then Ram Das, Ram Das, you know, a massive figure inside of, you know, his community, thought of by many as a real sort of spiritual leader and author of published many, many times over, is captured here after experiencing a devastating stroke. So self-recognizing and acknowledging that he's towards the end of his life and willing to be incredibly candid and honest in the process of, of what his stroke has presented to him. He's captured in his body. He feels very trapped in his body, but somehow has found a way to see this as a release for his mind and his spirit and how he actually looks the next stage of life going into transitioning into death and walking through that process, something that I think none of us are immune from. So having the ability to see this from such a luminary, you know, their willingness to be that generous and to share that experience firsthand is quite something. It's an amazing group. And with our with our last minute, I hope I can just do what we call rapid fire. Just the ah. first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. How many pitches do you hear a week? <laughs> well, I should say I have an incredible team. Thank goodness for my team. You know, probably 50 to 75, wow. maybe. Who do you see as your primary competitors? 
Well, it's exciting. What I would say is you've got a lot of different platforms coming. You have stalwarts in, you know, the likes of HBO. You obviously see big players coming up like Amazon and, you know, what is Apple going to be doing, etc. But I have to say, you know, again, us singularly being able to offer that global platform is pretty darn exciting. And yeah. I think that there are, the idea that there's multiple buyers in the marketplace is actually a great thing. I think it's creating a world where there's more opportunities for great storytellers, so we're really excited about it. What's the percentage these days or the proportion between licensed docs versus original docs at Netflix? We still have a really healthy licensing division, which is wonderful, which is why when we're making the selection process, we can be, we can look for something very exceptional in that process. Is there a dollar amount over which you feel that you should get approval before you spend it on a doc? I know it's going to sound crazy. Maybe we'll change after I say this on air. Ted and Cindy have been remarkably generous. They've been pretty great about allowing us to, to make our choices, and it helps that they're huge fans of the forum. What's one thing people don't know about Ted Sarandos that they should know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that this is a big secret. He's wildly passionate. He's, right. like, genuinely into content. We got into this funny conversation around comedy, and I said, you know why comedy? Because he's a lifelong fan. And I love this answer. He said it's because I couldn't dance. <laughs> so I started going to comedy clubs, which right. I love. That's great. What are the metrics by which you decide if a doc has been successful for Netflix? You mm -hmm. don't make viewing stats public. I assume you see them. Yep. But is that even the primary consideration? I mean, we want, as an obligation to our filmmakers, we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to get them the biggest global audience. So certainly we do take a look at that. But we look at, can we affect the zeitgeist of culture? Mm -hmm. That's really what it's about. And we hear a lot about that from filmmakers because you're right, we don't release numbers. But I tell you, I hear from filmmakers... You know, I love Ava's line about when 13th release, she said, my God, my Twitter timeline is in shambles. What have you done? Right. So being able to be part of the cultural conversation, particularly for documentary and comedy as well, because of the social commentary. And again, having the global world talking about it all at the same time. I think that's a major part of what we are constantly looking to achieve. With Netflix stocks flourishing the way they are, what's it like for you to go to a festival like Sundance or an event like the IDA Awards where you are just surrounded by doc filmmakers? Is it actually, you must feel like you're in a swarm, people, right? <laughs> no, real, real talk. I love this community. Right. You know, I mean, doc filmmakers are in it for a very unique and specific reason. Their stories are really fascinating. So, yeah, no, we feel really lucky to be part of the community. Who's a doc filmmaker who you haven't yet worked with who you'd most like to work with? Wow. Well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Errol Morris. And you got him. So, I mean, that was that was the dream always was Errol Morris. And so we had one of those meetings where we said, you know, what's the thing that's keeping right. you up at night? And he said, well, there's the thing that I want to make, but it's impossible to make. Right. And that's what piqued the interest. And that's, that's where we've ended up with Wormwood. What's the doc that got away? The one you most regret not getting for one reason or another? Because of what it was at the moment in time, it would have been awfully nice to have Blackfish as a... Yeah. As an original, yeah. But you ended up getting it as a license. <laughs> we did, and we didn't have an original initiative at the right. time quite yet, but yeah. Last one. It seems like a disproportionate number of the most powerful people in the doc world are women. Sheila Nevins helped to pave the way at HBO. Mm -hmm. There's also you at Netflix, Molly Thompson at A&E, Courtney Sexton at CNN Films, Carolyn Labresco at Sundance, on and on and on. I'm leaving off other examples. Is there any rhyme or reason for this? Why are women better at docs than men these days? I think the doc branch also has the highest proportion of women. I think, right? I think, I think, I uh, think, certainly one of the highest. Yeah. I think it's a really progressive community. I think it's about who's got the goods, who's got the story, who has the passion. So I'd like to think that inside that community, it's a little bit more of a 
meritocratic, let your work do the talking kind of a situation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I know you don't do a lot of interviews, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.